I still consider single family uh, from time to time, but more on a uh, more on a flip basis. Um, that's it's quick cash. Um, sometimes you know the 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 returns can be very attractive, depending on where you buy at. Um, I'm not a huge fan of single family anymore because of the administrative burden. With multifamilies, you can buy 100 units and you have one loan, one insurance payment, one property tax payment, etc. Welcome to the Power of Passive Income and How to Retire Rich with your host, Vijay Patel. Get your financial advice straight from the experts and learn how to take your first steps towards financial freedom. If you're ready to retire rich, then listen up. So good morning, everyone. Uh, we have uh, Reggie in the house. And uh, as you know, uh, the story of the podcast is power of passive investing and helping like everybody retire rich kind of thing. But uh, so we have Reggie today and like we have an incredible story to be told uh, by himself. And we want to definitely have some learning lessons uh, that how did he transition himself from W2 being a self-employed, doing real estate, uh, doing multifamily and, you know, uh, making a transition in a way where he is independent, uh, uh, happy and, you know, uh, able to support his family and not being trapped in a rat race of a W2 where there's never ending, you know, paying bills kind of thing. So Reggie, if you can just, uh, you know, stay, take the stage and introduce yourself and we, we can move forward. Sure. Thank you, VJ, and, and thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, so my name is Reggie Ross. I've, uh, um, I started off as a chemical engineer in the oil and gas industry. I uh, spent a vast majority of my career there, uh, mainly in corporate sales. Um, spent a little time on the technical side and uh, touched all the all the major business functions uh, during my tenure. Um, now, kind of in parallel, I, I slowly started uh, getting into real estate through flips. Um, I turned my primary residence into a, uh, a rental and uh, moved into a condo, and that was the beginning of the experiment. And um, I started very slow. I started uh, a long time ago, um, but uh, I would like to think that my growth curve is exponential. Um, I've done a lot just in the past few years. Um, so I started off a single family, um, accumulated a, a sizable portfolio, and then I liquidated my single families and transitioned into multifamily and have, haven't looked back. Um, the economies of scale, um, just all the benefits that come along with multifamily um, just appealed to me. It's where I always wanted to be. It just made sense uh, to me for a lot of reasons. And uh, so in, in, in the past uh, several years, I've um, linked up with uh, two partners and um, we basically, right now we use private equity to raise capital and purchase, operate, and uh, um, value add properties uh, in the Southeast uh, markets. Understand. So what was the you know thinking behind moving from W2 being a self-employed? Because that's where people get stuck is uh, fear, right? So what was the mental process and mental thinking that, okay, I don't want to be doing like, you know, on a W2 and like, you know, I want to be like, you know, financially independent for me, for my family. So what was the thinking process? Just walk us through that. Well, I think at one time or another, I think everybody has had the thought that, yeah, I would like to have more money and, you know, so I don't have to clock in and out or, you know, you don't have to be constrained by, uh, you know, uh, policies and, and, you know, things that, that your employer imposes on you. And, 
Um, really, to me, it was um, it was family. It was a pretty personal reason, actually. Um, um, so I had a, um, a daughter when I was very young, and I missed a lot of her childhood because I was going to college, I was working, and you know, looking back, I missed out on some really important times in her life because I was, you know, trying to do the right thing and establish a career. And you know, looking back. Um, you know, or I guess looking forward to, I say, um, I, I want to spend more time with my family and I don't want to spend it uh, traveling all the time. Um, I, I don't want to spend it, you know, in a, in a nine to five and in oil and gas industry, it's not just nine to five, it's a lot of times it's 24 seven. Um, and so those are just a few of the, the reasons that I chose to take this path. And I never knew it was possible. It always seems so out of reach, but I realized after forming some partnerships and having discussions with other folks like yourself that it's, it's very possible. Great. So, uh, like, the second question is, and like, I think everybody wants to know is, like, how did you scale yourself from zero to 1,000 door in really short time? So, like, just walk us through that process. Well, early on with single family, I, you know, I kind of piecemeal properties together. Um, I might have done, you know, I did a burger here and there. Um, I'd buy, renovate, rent it out, um, do the cash out refinance and kind of just repeat the process. And, you know, that's, that's more of a linear approach. Um, and then, so I got into buying portfolios of single family homes. And that was really my first experience with um, raising investor capital. Um, and that was that was an interesting process because that that doesn't come natural to me. Uh, the capital raising process, I had to change the way that I thought um, because it's, now I realize that it's not asking people for money. You're providing them an opportunity to make money, and and that's really really what it's about. Um, and so on that first go around, um, I actually structured a lot of the investment as debt as opposed to equity. Um, and so I was able to retain 100% of the ownership um, in the, the single family portfolio. So once I did that um, and accumulated more, I, I eventually just kind of liquidated everything and, and rolled it into multifamily. Um, but yeah, that, that was kind of one, that was the step, uh, I think, there of just kind of seeing the economy at the scale of multifamily. Got it. So. Uh, can you share some of your investor stories? How did you change their life by investing passively in your deals? Because this is the show all about passive investing and like trying to, uh, you know, spread the word that, okay, like, you know, even if you don't have time, you can still invest passively and be part of the deal. It's not like, oh, somebody's just trying to take your money away, but you can literally be part of the deal, get to know the guys and, you know, at least get to know the process too. And maybe you can, uh, you know, jump off the ladder. Well, you know, um, some of the first couple of deals that I did that involved outside capital, um, I really had to give away a lot, or I had to offer very attractive terms to attract the investor capital because of my lack of experience managing investor capital. And I was very willing to do that. Um, I know that sometimes you have to put in that, um, that work uh, to establish the reputation, and I was happy to do so. And it worked out well. Um, I think some of the folks that I, missed, that I worked with early on were very happy um, in the deals that we took full cycle. Um, you know, so far we've been able to meet all of our um, 
you know, investor expectations and, you know, no deal ever goes to plan. Uh, but, you know, the deals that we have taken full cycle, like for instance, we, we took one uh, to market last year and sold it uh, several years earlier than we had actually planned. But we kind of saw what was happening on the horizon of the debt markets. And we had already executed the value add plan. And so we decided to harvest profits. Um, and so that was just an example of where we were able to outperform from an IRR perspective and a cash to cash perspective, even though we sold a little bit earlier. So the trade off there was that everybody had to uh, deal with the recapture um, on the depreciation a little bit earlier than anticipated. But I think all in all, the, when you factor in the time value of money, it just it made sense. Got it. So. Right now, there's a lot of cloud around real estate market, like, you know, interest rate are fluctuating, um, economy is slowing down. So how do you yourself positioning and what do you think about in general real estate? Is it still good, good investment? It's, it's always it's always going to be a good investment. Um, now, I, I say that generally speaking, of course, there's markets that you might want to avoid at certain times. Maybe there's certain asset classes that aren't going to perform well in the near term. But, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, you make most of your money when you buy, not when you sell. And I think that's going to be very true. Um, so while I continue to be bullish on multifamily, um, the number of deals that are making sense or we're just not going to see a whole lot. Of it. Um, so obviously, I think things um, I don't think cap rates are going to go up too much. I think we may just see a stagnation over the next couple of years. Uh, I, I, I mean, even with what's going gone the past two years, they've they've remained pretty uh, uh, pretty sticky. Um, so you know, people always need a place to live, and if you look at the population growth in the U.S., it, it's going to continue to go up. We've already got a, a shortage of housing. Um, for right now, you know, staring down the barrel of a recession, home ownership is going to go down, and that means there's going to be more renters in the market, and so. Um, while yeah, there's some headwinds out there, I think overall it's still going to be a good um, inflation hedge. And if I just think about it in the most simplistic terms, there's a finite amount of land on Earth and there's an ever-increasing population and they're going to need places to live. Got it. So uh, what do you think about the other asset class? Because there's a lot of noise about multifamily. But what about the other asset class? And uh, like, how do you invest? If you do, then let's discuss about that. Um, I still consider single family uh, from time to time, but more on a uh, more on a flip basis. Um, that's, it's quick cash. Um, sometimes you know the, the the returns can be very attractive, depending on where you buy at. Um, I'm not a huge fan of single family anymore because of the administrative burden. With multifamilies, you can buy 100 units and you have one loan, one insurance payment, one property tax payment, etc. And if you want 100 um, single family homes, you have 100 of you have 100 bills for each line item and it just can get cumbersome. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the benefits of multifamily is that you're not necessarily um, uh, at the mercy of the local comps. You know, you can through value, you know, strategic value add projects, you can increase the value of your property. Um, now, you know, there, there's still the cap rate conversation to have, but you have a lot more control. And the single family, I, I just, I think we're gonna still see some contraction in home prices. 
Um, and so if people are looking for appreciation plays, um, and even flippers, I, I think they're going to start to see margins kind of thin out. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think only time will tell. It, it really, it's really going to depend on if we get that soft landing that the Fed wants, which with the tight labor market, we could see that. Uh, but we'll see. So what type of returns you try to give out on your investors? So like, you know, like being a passive investor, there's a like, you know, people try to distribute quarterly, uh, people try to distribute even monthly basis. So what type of, you know, structure you try to do keeping your passive investors in mind? How do you make them happy? Um, so just on a, at a high level, we typically try to structure or we, we try to find investments that can support anywhere from a 6% to a 10% prep. Um, and then we like to see at least a 2x multiple um, at a five-year exit. Now, um, I've been kind of a very big fan of a perpetuity model that we stumbled upon through some uh, some JV partners. And uh, basically it involves, you know, finding properties that you can refinance out 100% of the member capital within two to three years of purchase. So, you get a prep those first two or three years, and then at the end of, say, year three, you get 100% of your original investment back, and then you share in the cash flow um, from then on out. And so, you know, we intend to hold a lot of these, uh, you know, as long as we can. So at least we, we say perpetuity, but that could mean 20, 30 years or more. Mm -hmm. um, since this is a, a generational wealth play for a lot of us, and you know, we're trying to build a legacy for our families, it's something I'd like to pass down to my children. So we. We, we keep the long-term perspective on um, our acquisitions. Now, that a lot of times that means we pass up on really good deals that may check the box for a five-year turn and burn. Um, but, you know, since we're looking long-term, that's where we kind of keep our focus in multifamily. Got it. So, like, let's say if an investor is watching this video and try to invest in your deal, like, what type of like you know numbers you try to you know deliver? Uh, you mentioned about like typically you try to do five-year cycle or is it less? Uh, you know, and what type of properties you go after and what's your thinking behind acquiring the properties? Sure. Um, so the the some of our early projects were uh, they were planned five-year projects. Uh, the one that I mentioned earlier, we we actually took it to market about eighteen months after purchase. Um, we had finished the value-added plan, had questions about the upcoming, uh, you know, state of the economy, and uh, so we were able to dispose of it and provide solid returns for everybody. Now, everything else that we have right now, we have one property that we will hold for, we'll end up holding for about five years, um, and then we'll sell, but everything else that we have, we plan to hold indefinitely. Um, so typically, you know, if we're, if we're talking cash on cash, um, we typically strive for that magic, you know, eight to 12%. Um, if we can get more, great. Um, and then if I think about IRR, um, we typically look, try to look for anything above um, 15. Um, and that's, uh, you know, we try to underwrite based on reality. Um, you know, so, you know, sometimes I see some wild uh, rent projections um, I may see unrealistic uh, numbers on certain light items. I might even see mistakes. Um, you know, like some municipalities, for instance, they'll 
they um, assess property taxes and arrears. And so that means you may not see an increase for a year or two, but when you see it, it's gonna be significant. And sometimes that's not built into the numbers. And so those are, those are the types of details we try to dive into to make sure that our pro forma isn't just solid in year one, it's, it's as solid as it can be with the uncertainty around it, you know, through the, the life cycle of the project. Got it. So like a lot of people just talk about success, but we also want to talk about like failures, you know, everybody has their fair share of failure, but we learn from it and, you know, like we improve ourselves. So if you want, if you can uh, please share some of that learning, um, I would like, we would appreciate. Sure. Um, you know, that was, uh, I think I alluded to this uh, when we were talking before the podcast uh, started, but um, I had a lot of learnings early on. Um, when I turned my primary residence into a rental, I thought because I was getting more rent than my mortgage payment that I was making money. And that's as deep as I thought about it. And, you know, I realized that that was really only the tip of the iceberg. Um, and so, I, you know, some of my early learnings, I, I would say I probably still made money on that on that first rental. Uh, but I made so many, many mistakes. Um, I chose the wrong property management. Um, uh, you know, I, the way I, uh, there's just so many things that I, I did wrong or just wasn't aware of. And so that was one of the reasons that I stayed solo for so long because I wanted to get a lot of that, a lot of those mistakes out of the way. And uh, so, I, you know, I'm a firm believer that you you got to fail because um, that's, that's where you learn. Um, in the engineering world, if you talk to two engineers that uh, both work on, you know, the same area, if somebody has a lot of problems in their career, they're going to learn a lot more than the guy whose um, projects always went, you know, yeah. without a hitch. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. how I think about failure. It's, it's all about like problem solving, like, like especially like what you learn from uh, failure is a problem solving better than somebody else's. Like if your life is smooth, you don't know the problem solving, <laughs> right? Right. Like you know the right way of doing, but you don't know what if the problem, like if, if things go south. And at every point of any business, you know, like no matter if it is real estate, you know, engineering or even healthcare doctors, you know, um, there's always ups and downs, you know, if, if there's something, a new regulation or new things that will, you know, uh, can change uh, industry entire overnight. So, but let's discuss about one thing is like, uh, there's a lot of people out there trying to be a syndicator, right? So as a passive investor, what are the qualities they should look for if they are trying to invest in a deal? Or how, how can they make sure that their money is secure? Well, so, you know, I mentioned reputation earlier and experience. Um, you know, when I first got started, that was the biggest barrier to entry. Um, we had a lot of interested parties, a lot of phone calls. And, but when it got down to, well, you know, how many deals have you done like this? And the answer was zero. That usually eliminated a lot of potential prospects. And so, um, you know, early on, we had to um, take a lot less equity and, um, you know, provide higher returns in exchange uh, for the confidence. But you know, slowly over time, if if you act as a if you if you approach multifamily like you're a fiduciary with your investors' best interests in mind, I, I, I don't think you can go wrong. And it's always putting them before yourself. And that's one of the reasons that we always invest in our own deals, 
so that our investors know that, hey, we have skin in the game too. And we believe in this deal so much that we're putting our own capital into it. Yeah. I think one one thing that everybody, every investor I think likes is a skin in the game. Like if you are taking my money, like are you investing yours, right? Because if, if it's like, uh, you know, your, your mouth is where you are saying, right? Kind of thing. So uh, like, I think I, I, I truly, truly believe in that too, is, is, is the people like to see some skin in the game. Uh, I have closed so many deals just based on that. Like, uh, the first question is, are you investing in the deal? And the question will usually come from, uh, you know, uh, like some experienced investors. The first question or some older people because they have so much of experience that this will be the first question they will ask is are you investing in this money like property if the answer is yes then let's talk otherwise don't even talk like you know let's, that's it conversation is over kind of thing so yeah i, I think I, I would like definitely relate that is uh like sincerity i would say uh your investor has to see like sincerity of uh, like your work, uh, like, you know, how serious you are about your money and the work that you're doing. Uh, do you know your work? Like, you don't, do you know your numbers? Uh, a lot of invest, like, you know, syndicators are out there, uh, like inflating the numbers, like hyperinflating the numbers, right? So like a true investors will know these differences, but somebody starting out might not know. So. Uh, I think a background check, a history would help at least to read that. And then, you know, like as, as you invest, we can definitely, you know, like it's kind of getting pro at every point, like whether it's you're doing it in a management side or you're doing investment side, then you know that, okay, like, you know, this is the market. If this is the property, yeah, it makes sense kind of thing. Yeah, and a lot of times you can look at the incentives for the GPs in a deal and kind of get a sense of of where their priorities are. Um, and for instance, and and this I'm not knocking anybody else's business model when I say this, by the way. Um, but the way that we structure most of our deals is we don't we don't really make a lot of money up front. You know, we don't we don't take large acquisition fees. We don't nickel and dime investors um, for for every little milestone. We basically don't even get paid very much until they get all of their original investment back. And so uh, we kind of think of it as, you know, the pot of the gold at the end of the rainbow. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if you look at a deal and they've got a 5% acquisition fee and, you know, a 10% a, a asset management fee, and I'm just, I'm being dramatic, but, um, you know, if you see some exorbitant fees on there um, and, you know, maybe that's a red flag. Um, but I think you have to take the overall investment picture into account if it's, I mean, if it's going to be a very heavy lift, maybe a higher asset management fee is uh, is, is valid. Um, and so, you know, that, that's just where the, the critical thinking comes in. But, uh, you know, uh, for investors, there's a lot of things you can look out for. But thankfully, we have the Internet nowadays and it's made the world a much smaller place. So sometimes just with a quick you know, keystroke, you can find out a lot more than you used to. And, um, you know, you can look up LLC records on the Secretary of State website. You can look up property tax records. So many things that, so many public records you can use to validate the information. And um, and that's what it's about. You, you want to be able to trust your sponsor, but you should also be able to verify what they're saying to you. Yeah. And 
I think like well, what you mentioned, uh, one key point is the management fees and other fees that people try to. So like when they are trying to attract investors, they are throwing out like, you know, OM left and right, but OM has all the projections. I have yet to see OM, which is clearly like stating, okay, this is going to be the management fees and this. Usually they talk about performance on OMs, right? And try to attract it. So if, if there is a more transparency around management fees and operation fees, I think that that would be highly appreciated from the investor point of view, uh, you know, like from a lot of guys, like not just performa, of course, performa is important, but is a like, you know, dollar save is dollar earned. So if somebody is losing 10% on a management fee, that is the money that is gone from investor side that could be used for cash flow, right? So, sure. Uh, yeah, like I, I, I see like a lot of backdooring just based on that. Like people just try to, you know, jack up the management fees and like other miscellaneous kind of fees. Uh, they try to come up with the different words from, you know, institutional <laughs> investors kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, as an as a individual, I would say like just try to stay away from uh, institu- like institutional, uh, you know, uh, process because they, their 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 game is totally different. They they, they don't care about investors. Uh, as we were talking about BlackRock, right? Uh, they just stopped uh, like you know distribution, but they will still have funding that uh, individual uh, you know real estate uh, investors cannot afford. All right. So, uh, what about like you know RV parks that you mentioned? Let's just talk about that for a few minutes, and we can I think conclude. Okay. Um, well, so, uh, you know, as, as a group, we have some operational experience. Um, one of the partners owns a, a 50 pad RV park in Florida. Um, and we recently closed on 106 pad RV resort development in South Mississippi. And this one was uh, positioned uh, very uniquely. Um, we were actually looking at a completely different piece of property. And we were, we were calling the different parks around conducting the market analysis. Um, hey, what's your occupancy? You know, what are you charging per night, per week, per month? Uh, you know, do you rent by the month or by the week? And you know, all, all of those types of things, we're collecting data. And we came across a gentleman and he said, well, um, you know, I'm booked up for three months, but you know, I was gonna build this RV resort down the road and I'll sell you that property. And uh, we went and looked at it, and uh, turns out after uh, Katrina, they after Hurricane Katrina in back in 2005, I think, um, it was a FEMA trailer park. Uh, you know, FEMA set up trailers for people who had been displaced from their homes. Um, and so there were sewer lines, water lines, uh, power poles already ran, uh, roads were already there, and basically had all the infrastructure in place. So really, all we had to do is put a few buildings, uh, give the place a facelift and put uh, pads down. And, uh, you know, the the, uh, the market and the area, um, it's very, uh, uh, it's very short supply. Every, within about a 30 mile radius, there's basically no occupancy. And, uh, and so it was it was kind of a no brainer for us, but um, we're, we, we closed, what, I think on the 15th of this month. And uh, we've already, we've got all the entitlements complete. Um, our, we've already started work on site. So it's, 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 it's exciting. We're, we're looking forward to it. And we're a fan of this asset class, by the way, because it has very low uh, overhead. You know, with multifamily, the old rule of thumb is the 50% operating expense ratio. 
at least that's where you start anyway. And with uh, RV resorts, it's it's closer to 25 to 40%, depending on how high end you go. Um, so we like that. We like that it's not as uh, capital intensive as uh, some of the other asset classes. Got it. Uh, I think uh, we'll just open up a Q&A for like a few minutes and then we go from there. So Sherry and Matt, if you have any questions, we can take that or we can conclude. I, I'm good, actually. I've, I've enjoyed this. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. So I think it's a good time to conclude and we can definitely, you know, continue this talk. Uh, you know, it was nice really meeting you, Reggie. Uh, was nice knowing you in person. Uh, I know we know each other through social media. As you said, the world is very small. I get a lot of DMs from a lot of people that, you know, just through social media. And I think, uh, you know, like as long as you use it in a good way, it's a, it's a very good platform to meet new kind of people, which was not possible like a couple of years ago, right? So thank you so much for everyone that is joining and we'll meet next week. And, you know, uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you, BJ. I appreciate it. Yes.